Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Brett Baer. I'm Katie Pavlich, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, December 6th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Is anti-Semitic speech on university campuses protected speech? While university presidents grapple with how much hate speech is allowed, attorneys are suing the colleges. Students who confront Jewish students with chants of, F the Jews, you are a dirty Jew, keep walking, you dirty little Jew, and so on and so on, that is not protected speech on any college campus. I'm Dave Anthony. Demand for EVs isn't as electric as it used to be. A lot of drivers still prefer filling up over plugging in. If you're faced with a choice of buying an electric car or not, and you're worried about going on a road trip, I mean, the charging infrastructure is not very reliable. And I'm Will Kane, and I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. On Tuesday, three university presidents testified before the House Education and Workforce Committee. The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and University of Pennsylvania said while they personally find anti-Semitic speech abhorrent and condemn it, they are also tasked with protecting free speech. Liz McGill is the president of the University of Pennsylvania. I know that we need both safety and free expression for universities and ultimately democracy to thrive. In these times, these competing principles can be difficult to balance but I am determined to get it right. New York Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik questioned Harvard President Claudine Gay, who said she understood that calling for intifada was hateful speech, but... It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, harassment, Does that speech not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? Indiana Republican Representative Jim Banks told Penn's McGill it seemed there was a double standard, that they canceled a planned speech by the former head of Immigration Customs Enforcement and were punishing a professor who had issues with diversity, equity, and inclusion policies while protecting others. Or how about Huda... Fakhreddin, who romanticized the murder of over a thousand Israeli Jews as, quote, Palestine inventing a new way of life and clapped as a speaker said Jews should go back to Berlin and Moscow. Why does that professor still have a job at your university? I'm very troubled by what you're describing, Congressman, that kind of. uh, You're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You're defending it. Jewish students like Bella Ingber at NYU wonder why the free speech rights of others seem more important than their safety. Being a Jew at NYU has meant being physically assaulted in NYU's library by a fellow student while I was wearing an American Israeli flag and having my attacker still roam freely throughout the campus. Being a Jew at NYU is experiencing how diversity, equity, and inclusion is not a value that NYU extends to its Jewish students. In Harvard's case, the president was accused of being slow to respond to the Hamas attack as a number of student groups had signed a letter blaming Israel for being massacred on October 7th. Donors to Harvard and other major universities, including Ivy's, called on people to withdraw their funding, as they had done. 
and others are filing lawsuits, including one that was filed during Tuesday's hearing. We made sure to allege in excruciating detail many of the stomach-turning incidents of anti-Semitism that have taken place on Penn's campus, victimizing Jewish students. Attorney Mark Ressler is a partner at Castlewood Spenson and Taurus. Just most recently, uh, this past Sunday night, a rampaging mob marched through campus, scrolled buildings, defacing them with anti-Semitic graffiti, including buildings that surround the dormitories where our clients, who are Penn students, live. And then the mob went to uh, downtown Philadelphia, where they attacked uh, a restaurant solely because the owner of the restaurant is Jewish. I would note that that anti-Semitic act was labeled as such and condemned by the Pennsylvania governor, as well as several members of Congress from Pennsylvania. Uh, as we speak now, Pennsylvania hasn't said a word about the involvement of its students in that anti-Semitic act. As we speak now, uh, the student union at Penn is occupied by students who engage in genocidal chants against Israel and Jewish students. That's obviously in violation of Penn's codes of conduct and policies. The university has done nothing to clear the student union of those um, lawbreakers. Uh, and in addition, now I got I have to interrupt you before you move on, because as we heard at the hearing on Tuesday from the president of the University of Pennsylvania herself, um, she was asked about maybe not these particular incidents, but other incidents and how the university is sort of grappling with everything. And, and she insisted that, you know, there's free speech and they are dealing with that. They have to honor that um, and that their policies, their university policies fall in line with the Constitution of the United States. Those were her words, that they are following the Constitution. Um, you guys are saying what? No, you're, you're violating Title VI of the Federal Civil Rights Act, right? Yeah, I think President McGill would be extremely well served taking some time to read our complaint. I hope she reads every paragraph in our complaint because the incidents of anti-Jewish harassment that we describe in detail are not permitted to take place on any college campus. Students who confront Jewish students with chants of F the Jews, you are a dirty Jew, keep walking, you dirty little Jew, and so on and so on. That is not protected speech on any college campus. And President McGill knows that full well. Well, this and the, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik got into it with the Harvard president, right? And I don't know if you heard that part, but you might have been busy with the lawsuit, actually. But they got into a back and forth about when does conduct cross over from speech into behavior, into actual conduct. And it, it was interesting. It seemed like the University of Pennsylvania president and Harvard's president were a little bit stuck there, that, that, that they were really, really in their minds defending what they saw as speech as opposed to conduct. You're making the case that a lot of this is not just speech. That, that's correct. And I think that President McGill and President Gay did their students, their alumni, and the American public a profound disservice by trying to defend the incidents that we are alleging as legitimate free speech. It would be inconceivable 
for those presidents or any member of the Harvard or Penn or any university administration to defend the kind of bigotry and abuse that is visited upon Jewish students on their campuses if they were talking about members of any other protected group. Calls for genocide are not permitted against any university student. And let me note this, Penn has any number of codes of conduct and policies that explicitly prohibit the kind of conduct that we allege in our Title VI complaint. It's not a question of free speech, not by a long shot, and President McGill knows that. Title look, Title VI we, is is what? It, it, just briefly for our listeners, Title VI says you, you can't discriminate based on race, sex, national origin, right? It's that simple. That That's correct. That, that's exactly right. And in our complaint, we've alleged that because Pan has failed to address and ameliorate the anti-Jewish harassment on campus, it has created a hostile educational environment for Jewish mm. students. Okay. You're, you guys are also looking at other universities, right? You've actually filed against Penn, which is of note, because I think it was a couple of weeks ago we'd heard that you were you, your uh, law firm was looking to file. But there are other universities on your radar. I think I saw NYU. Um, can you share with us a little bit about where else you are looking to file, I guess, next? Sure. We filed our first lawsuit against NYU. Our second one was filed today against Penn. And as we stated previously, we're very actively investigating Title VI violations by Harvard, Cornell, MIT, and over on the West Coast, Stanford and Berkeley. What are you, as you do your research, and apologies, I didn't realize you'd already filed against NYU, um, but what are you finding in your research and your discovery process, I guess, um, about the uniqueness of this at Ivy's? Or, or is this happening at other campuses, just maybe not to this extent? I mean, what, what is your sort of research at this point pointing to? The reason we are investigating the schools I just mentioned, uh, which include some of the Ivy League schools, is because some of the worst instances of a hostile educational environment for Jewish students occurs at Ivy League schools. And it's profoundly distressing, to say the least, that these schools, which in many quarters are viewed as our most elite institutions, are among the worst offenders when it comes to protecting Jewish students. I, I think that, but that's my question is why? Are you learning anything in this process about why that is? Why at these elite, I mean, we all have these, uh, an understanding in our mind of what Harvard and Yale and Stanford and these universities are in American culture. Are you finding anything of significance about why that might be? Well, we look forward to putting the presidents of these universities and their administrators under oath and asking them precisely why they have permitted anti-Jewish bigotry to fester on campus, why they fostered that kind of hostile educational environment. But I will say this, just um, pointing to Harvard, I don't think it's a coincidence that on the rankings of schools with the worst free speech records, Harvard comes in dead last. That was a topic raised by several of the Congress people at today's hearing. 
And we do believe that there's a link between the fact that Harvard does not permit free speech in terms of any viewpoints that are at odds with Harvard's view of the world and its professor's view of the world. And there have been any number of Harvard professors who have raised their concerns about that lack of free speech that prevails on campus. Okay, finally, um, you know, we're hearing, this is like I think the second congressional hearing we've had on um, anti-Semitism on campuses. Do you want Congress to do anything? I mean, you you guys are attorneys, right? You're taking matters into your own hands, filing lawsuits based on what you see as violations of, of the law. But some people want Congress to do something here. Is is there anything Congress should do or could do, or is this really a matter that should best be left up to the courts? And we have existing law that could, you know, in your mind, you know, is enforceable here. We believe it is critical for Congress to take the hard look at this very important issue that they have been taking and to make sure, number one, that the laws on the books are being enforced. In that regard, let's not forget that the Biden administration has repeatedly reminded universities of their obligations to comply with and enforce Title VI, and the universities, like Penn, have repeatedly thumbed their nose at those directives, number one. And number two, uh, we think it is imperative that law enforcement also take a close, hard look at the situation on campus. There has been violence against Jewish students on campus, Let's make sure that our federal prosecutors and our local prosecutors, our U.S. attorney's offices and our district attorney's offices around the country, working in conjunction with the FBI and with local police departments, are focused on this issue before terrible incidents occur. Attorney Mark Ressler, partner at Caswitz, Benson and Torres, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. I'm Emily Campagno, host of the Fox True Crime podcast. This week, I spoke to Dr. Maggie Zingman, whose daughter, Brittany Phillips, was raped and murdered in her apartment 19 years ago. Maggie travels across the country in her caravan to catch a killer on a mission to find answers to her daughter's cold case. Available now on Apple, Spotify, and foxnewspodcast.com. This is Will Kane with your Fox News commentary coming up. Someday, the gas gauge may hit E... For good. Major auto companies are preparing for a 50% of future sales to be electric vehicles by 2030, 100% by 2035. And President Biden's proposing strict emissions standards so that within less than a decade from now, two-thirds of all vehicles sold will need to be plugged in. But many auto dealers want him to pump the brakes on that. Not everybody can afford this. It's not a practical means of transportation, affordable transportation for everybody. Paul LaRochelle is vice president at Sheehy Automotive, a group of dealers in the Washington, D.C. area, among nearly 4,000 across the country who've written to the Biden administration wanting regulations relaxed. He tells Fox sales have stalled. 
In the past week... I know it's single digits, and we have 30 stores, and we're, we're not, uh, they're not jumping off the shelves. And our day supply of a typical EV is almost more than triple of what it is of a normal car. So it's, it's a scary time for us. We're carrying a lot of these in stock. This, as Consumer Reports' new reliability survey shows, electric vehicles have 80% more problems than gas-powered cars and are generally less reliable. Most dealers you talk to are worried about this. Um, so you have to go back even just 12 months, 18 months ago. I mean, electric cars were hot, right? Mike Kalias is a Wall Street Journal reporter based in Detroit covering the auto industry. There were a number of new models coming out. They were getting a lot of buzz, like the Ford F-150 Lightning. You had these startups like Rivian and Lucid. Uh, people were really excited about them. Even the foreign companies uh, were, you know, Hyundai and Kia had some really nice cars. And just about all of these models had big wait lists. People were paying well above sticker price uh, for these things. There was real interest in and enthusiasm for electric vehicles. And there still is. It's just it's gotten choppy. There's not as much as there was. And so dealers see these things um, sitting on their lots for weeks or even months at a time when, you know, a year ago they would have sold it right away. And so sales are growing through November. So almost a full year electric vehicle sales will be up 50% um, over a year ago. But last year at this time, they were up 70%, and we have more models. And so the, it's, a, it's a slowdown in that rate of growth. And I think that's what has some people in the industry that have bet a lot on these a little nervous. Right. And obviously, with all technologies, you have early adopters, people who are dying to get their hands on whatever is brand new and something cool and neat. They have their EVs now, right? So now you have to find the next generation of buyers. I think you're spot on with that. I think, you know, electric vehicles have attracted sort of a tech forward, you know, there's the the Tesla customer is kind of like, I mean, the stereotype is, this, you know, more affluent, really interested in the technology, want to be, want to have the most innovative, latest thing, be seen as an innovator, you know, and you, so those people are willing to... And be seen as uh, helping the planet. They're, they're Earth-friendly. Sure, yeah, there's some of that. There's some of that. But, you know, there can be virtue signaling and all that. But I, I think, you know, by and large, there were people who thought this is a really cool brand. This is the future. And, you know, those people were willing to, to, to put up with a lot of hassles to be able to drive an electric vehicle. So, um, you know, Tesla hasn't always been known as for great quality. Those, you know, it's, it's loyal customers haven't they don't bat an eye at some of the problems that you might have with like a, a panel gap being out of place or or something that needs to be be fixed they just roll with it same with all of some of the hassles that come with electric vehicle ownership in general which is finding a charging station when you're on a road trip i mean that's one of the one of the biggest ones there's a story out about the money that Congress provided a couple of years ago seven and a half billion dollars for more electric vehicle chargers so far out of that money, not a single one has been built two years later. So it's still a problem. Yeah, and that doesn't surprise me because I know that that program, I think most of that money had to go to the states. And then the states, you know, the people who, who want access to the money to, to build and install the, uh, the, the chargers have to apply to the state. So, you know, it's like government bureaucracy upon bureaucracy. And you're going to you're going to have a long wait time there. Um I've talked to a lot of people who are sort of lined up waiting to go, but right now, yeah, if you're buying, if you're if you're faced with a choice of buying an electric car or not, and you're worried about going on a road trip, I mean, 
the charging infrastructure is not very reliable uh, outside of the Tesla supercharger network. You know, you might be relieved to find a charging station and then get there and, you know, the credit card reader doesn't work or the app's not loading or, you know, like I've been on these trips and, you know, I don't want to overstate it. Like plenty of them work just fine and people have this figured out, but there's real frustrations. There's gas stations everywhere. And if a pump's out, there's many other pumps all over the place. So if you get to one of these places and it doesn't work, what do you do? There's nobody there. There's not an attendant. I mean, even even loyal EV advocates will acknowledge that this is probably the biggest problem holding up um, holding up this transition. I will say that if you're someone who uh, has a generally like lives in a single family home, can install a charger in your garage and don't need to use it for road trips. And, you know, there's quite a few people who fall into that category. EVs can work really well. Most of them have ranges now of 250, 300, 300 plus miles. You can commute back and forth. You can do all your errands, go to your kids' practices and have plenty of juice when you get home. You charge overnight, you do it over again. Okay. And there's a lot of people making that work. Okay, but what about people... I have an older house, right? My house is like 90-something years old. It's not like I have the most up-to-date, you know, electric uh, hookup. So if I plug in a Tesla or some lightning truck, is it going to take forever? Is it going to drain my house electricity? I mean, I don't know. I don't own one of these things, but I hear people worry about it. Is that all true? Is that a, is that a real concern? Like there's a whole other question around the affordability of these things. But if you were to go buy one of those, you probably would also spend the money to have a charger put into your garage. Um, and those can kind of run around $1,000, but it sounds like with your house, older house, you're going to need to do some electrical upgrades and that could add, you know, quite a bit more onto it. That's real money. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you have to, you have to want to buy these things. So, you know, the, the cost of operate, so they, they cost more, right? Uh, Apples to apples basis and EV is going to cost you just same, similar sized car, um, you know, several thousand dollars more, let's call it 10%, give or take. But I get Uh, incentives, right? Don't I get a a tax break and, and other deals to get the EV? On some of the EVs for sale, many of them, you most people will qualify for a $7,500 tax credit. Um, there's income levels and there's the, the price of the car, but most buyers will qualify for that. So okay. that will lower the purchase price. And then you are going to, odds are, you're going to spend quite a bit less uh, you know, on your ownership of that car because you're not Charging is generally, if you charge at home, a lot less expensive than going to the gas station, and you should have lower maintenance and repair costs too. Right. So that's, that's there's no the oil change, right? There's none of that. Correct. Correct. So one of the things that I've also um, heard about the concerns about these vehicles are the batteries themselves and the environmental concern of how many of these batteries need to be produced over the next 10 years to reach the goals that that the Biden administration and some states have to to phase out gas-powered cars by 2035 for instance to buy them in you know new ones that is that a real concern the environment yeah i mean you've got to get minerals out of the ground in order to get them into these battery cells to make them work um, and there's mining that goes into that, right? I mean, there's carbon footprint involved with 
mining. There's also not just the environmental impact, but are we going to be able to get all these minerals out of the ground and into batteries in time to meet some of the targets either regulators have or some of the car companies have? That's a big concern too. Like, do we even, are, is there going to be a, a battery shortage as we try to make this transition? That's a very real thing. Okay. And we need to rely on China for a lot of that. Am I right? Yeah. Most of the minerals are either sourced in China, so either mined there or processed there. That's a big, it's a big place where you send the minerals to be processed and then they go elsewhere to be put into the battery cells. Um, it's hard if you're in a, if you're a car maker today and trying to stand up an electric vehicle business and you're buying battery cells from somewhere, it, you're almost certain that some of those materials, if not most or all of them, have come through China in some way, shape, or form. That's just batteries. And then there's, you know, electric vehicle truck plants and huge capital. I mean, tens of billions just from the American companies going into this stuff. I mean, globally, hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on these kind of projects. Okay. But for those who have, have thought, well, EVs are a fad and, and they're gonna it's just gonna fail. There's been a lot so much invested in this and all the regulations going into place for emissions in the future less than ten years from now. I mean it sounds like there's been so much invested in electric vehicles that we're going there no matter what. I think that's the right read. I mean, you know, the Biden administration has proposed some really strict tailpipe emissions standards. And to get to get to those, the car companies would need to put out a lot of EVs. Let's say there's a new administration that tears those plans up and you don't need it as much for the U.S. It doesn't really change the equation for the car companies because they have to compete in they need to compete in China, in Europe, um, certain states like California. They're not going to back down from their 2035, no more gas power cars. I mean, they may they may adapt over time if, you know, consumer demand doesn't materialize. But the point is, like, reg just from a regulatory standpoint, all these car companies need to move in this direction. They've already spent a lot of the money. That's one. And then the second piece of it is, you know, Tesla's worth 10 times GM, Ford, Volkswagen, Toyota combined, right? Wall Street is still telling these companies that we know the growth is there and we're going to reward the companies that are going after it in a smart way. The electric grid, generally speaking, is anyone concerned that it can't handle this? Or are we going to have enough capacity for everybody plugging a car in in their home in 20 years? I have talked to people who feel like we could get to a quarter of sales or even a third of sales in the U.S. being EVs before we need to start worrying about, like, you know, grid upgrades. Um, I mean, there's work going on in that now, and people are certainly thinking about it. I don't think there's, an, like, a, you know, um, an immediate worry that, you know, if we start selling a ton of EVs, it's going to take down the grid. But longer term, yeah, there, there needs to be work done on the grid. Mike Kalias is a Wall Street Journal reporter for the automotive industry based in Detroit. And it was great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. You bet. Appreciate it. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Will Kane. 
What's on your mind? Texas is in the college football playoff. Celebrate. Florida State is out of the college football playoff. Injustice. Hey, what's up? It's Will Kane of the Will Kane Podcast here. Florida State, although undefeated in a Power 5 conference, has been left out of the college football playoff. You know, I think throughout my life I have been someone who's almost leaned too heavily into logic, looking for consistency and looking for principles as a way to explain the world. In a way, I think that's protected me from some level of cynicism. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good. More importantly, I don't think it's accurate to always be cynical. But this week in college football would certainly give you an example and maybe even an illustration in greater America how cynicism tells you what's actually going on. And the world and college football are full of elites and a boys club. And no matter how hard you work, no matter what the merit, you don't get in to the club. The rationale, the logic for keeping Florida State out of the four-team college football playoff over Alabama is that they lost their quarterback. But there have been teams throughout history, like Ohio State in 2014, who lost their quarterback and still made the playoff. The argument has been their offense since that time, though, has sputtered and quarterback play has been poor. But the same year as Florida State was going 3-0, and Michigan's quarterback play under J.J. McCarthy sputtered and their offense did not look great. In fact, statistically, Florida State was better through the air than Michigan. The point is you can't find logic. You can't find the consistency, and you can't find the principle. And I will only ask you this. Flip it. Flip it. If Alabama's quarterback had been hurt, and they were on the second string, and they barely beat Georgia in the SEC playoffs, barely mustering up any offense and winning on defense, would Alabama have been kept out of the playoff? And you know that the answer is no. I think Alabama is better than Florida State. But that's just my opinion. And I have to understand it comes with humility. And therefore, humility requires me and you and should require the College Football Playoff Committee to reward what happens on the field. And Florida State was undefeated. That's what a meritocracy demands. Otherwise, it's simply a boys club of rankings of the biggest brands. And that's why Alabama is in the College Football Playoff. But I'll always have my horns. Hook them. I'll see you over on the Will Kane podcast. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.